0: Well, again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are so glad to have you join us and to worship with us and to, at this point in our service, um, allow us to stop speaking and to have God speak to us through His Word, through the preaching of His Word. Uh, We are in a series in Luke's Gospel that we have called Getting to Know Jesus. And uh, I think it's the case that we might have a, a handful of Bibles in the back that if someone needs a Bible... Uh, doesn't have a Bible or didn't bring a Bible, we'd be happy to supply one for you. So if you just raise your hand, uh, one of the brothers in the back will, will bring you one, and uh, we'll be happy to have you follow along. But we're in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, when you hear me say chapter number, chapter 5, that's the big number on the page. When you hear me say the verse number, say verse 1, that's the small number on the page. So we're in Luke chapter 5, big number, verse 1 to 32 small numbers. As you turn there, let me ask you a question. When you think of holiness, what comes to mind? For many people, images of a Buddhist monk. Maybe the Dalai Lama, dressed in a robe with a clean-shaving head, humble, gentle smile, devout in religious duty and Religious activity. Maybe you think similarly of a Mahatma Gandhi, clothed again in a robe. I don't know why the holy always wear robes. Slightly bent. He seems to be a little bit wasted away from, we assume, fasting and spiritual devotion. Or maybe you don't think of a person as such, maybe you think of a, a particular posture. That the holy person is a person who is separated away from everything that's unclean, everything that's sinful, everything that would be displeasing to God or, or maybe immoral in and of itself, this holy person ab, abstains from. So they're known really by what they reject, by the kinds of things they don't do. How's it go, Matt? They don't curse, they don't chew, they don't go out with girls who do, something like that. <laughs> And no, by what they reject. And so in their abstinence from what is unclean, and their, their sort of removing themselves from, from what pollutes, what soils, we come to regard them as holy. But what if there's another kind of holiness? What if there's another kind of holiness that's not defined so much by its abstention, so much by what it avoids and stays away from, It isn't defined so much by its religious activity and its religious habit. What if there's a kind of holiness that is, yes, transcendent, but also transformative? A kind of holiness that also makes contact with the world, and in that contact transforms the world. At the end of Luke chapter 4, you remember Jesus goes into the synagogue and he casts out demons. And you remember what one of the demons cries out? He says, we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, what? The Holy One of God. Now your title in in your bulletin says something about the title of the sermon is something along the lines of Lord of of all mankind or something. We're going to change the title this morning. We're going to look this morning at Jesus the Holy One of God, and get to know Him in this surprising, transformative holiness. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read to verse 32. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we told all night and took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. the Word of God. We're taking notes this morning. We're looking at Jesus, the Holy One of God. And I want us to think about this text with four points, really moving through those four scenes in the text. One point for each of those scenes. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's, here's my outline. Jesus has a holiness that number one exposes us to ourselves. Jesus has a holiness that number one exposes us to ourselves. We see that in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Number 2, Jesus has a holiness that that number 2, cleanses us before God. Cleanses us before God. You see that in verses 12 to 16. Third, Jesus has a holiness that number 3, legitimately forgives sins. Legitimately forgives sin. And number 4, Jesus has a holiness that calls sinners to repentance. It exposes us to ourselves. It cleanses us before God. It legitimately forgives sin, and it calls sinners to repentance. Our text begins in chapter 5, verse 1, with a fishing story. It's not the kind of tall tale fishing story that guys normally tell. You know, the, it was this big, no, this big, you know. And those kinds of stories, nobody's ever there And the fish gets bigger every time you tell it, and it always got away, right? Now, this this is a different kind of fishing story. It's got a lot of people involved. And and I imagine that the disciples years later, when they would begin to tell this story, they'd say something like, leaning back, and their eyes roll up in their head, Man, you remember that time? We caught so many fish, two boats sank. And then they would go on and break open the details. Here's, Here's how it happened. Verse 1, the crowds are pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God. Now, keep your eye on the crowd as we go through this chapter. But here they came so close that the Lord had to leave the shore. He had to, in verses 2 and 3, get in a boat, push off from the shore a little bit so that he could then turn and teach the people. And that's what he did. Verse 4 tells us that after, the, after he had taught the people, the Lord asked Peter to put out into the deep, let down your net for a catch. I imagine there was kind of a, a cool poise in the Lord's voice. And, and like it was nothing. And, and maybe a, a knowing twinkle in his eye. Verse 5, Peter has the attitude of all of us when we think somebody, some rookie is trying to tell us how to do our business. No. Notice, notice, Peter is the experienced fisherman. Jesus is a handyman. You know, Peter has been out all night. Jesus just got into the boat, right? Peter hadn't caught anything all night, and Jesus wants to say the fish are biting, right? He ain't got no fish finder. He don't know nothing about what's out in the water, right? Peter is the one who has to row the boat, even though he's tired from all night's work. Jesus is the one sitting in the stern of the boat, right? And so you can imagine Peter's attitude, been working all night, hadn't caught anything, and Jesus is the rabbi, though. So Peter says, you know, I'm going to humor him. He says, notice here in the text, at your word, in other words, because you say so, I'm going to let down the nets. We're going to go out. Basically, he's passive aggressive here, right? With with a little hint of self-righteousness. Peter wasn't expecting what we see in verses 6 and 7. Look there with me. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. See, Peter, James, and John all were experienced fishermen. They had all often been out on this water. And no doubt they had their favorite spots from which to cast their nets. But they had never seen a catch like this. That's why we read in verses 9 and 10, look there. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. But something deeper happens to Peter. Something more profound enters his mind. When Jesus does this miracle... Peter gets a glimpse of the Lord's glory and his holiness. And in the light of Jesus' holiness, Peter sees his own heart. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And you ask yourself, what about seeing that miracle? What about just a, a big haul of fish would, would not only astonish Peter along with his partners, but, but what about it would make him, compel him to fall at his knees before Jesus and say about himself, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. I think he gets a glimpse in this miracle of the glory and majesty and the holiness of Jesus Christ. Peter has me thinking of Isaiah. Hey, keep your finger here in, uh, in Luke and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, that great prophet in a time where uh, significant political change was happening in Israel. Isaiah gets uh, a prophecy from the Lord and a vision from the Lord and it has the same effect. This glimpse of God's holiness has the same effect on Isaiah as it did on Peter. So, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, using one of the few Bibles, you find it on page 571. Notice what the Bible says there In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The old earth is full of his glory. And The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To see God in his holiness makes us aware of our sinfulness. Famous theologian John Calvin writing in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, said this, man never attains a true knowledge of God, of himself, excuse me, until he is contemplated or seen and thought deeply about the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. That's what happened with Peter. The eyes of his heart were lifted up to see the holiness and the glory of God and from that vision, he came down to look into himself, and he found in himself what we all find in ourselves, his sinfulness. Because he has a sense of God's holiness, he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And a really wonderful thing that begins to teach us something about the uniqueness of Jesus' holiness is our Lord's response. Verse 10 and 11. Look there with me. Luke chapter 5. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Here's a holiness that comes to sinners. Here's a holiness that calms The sinner and says, do not be afraid. He is a holiness that not only calms the sinner, but commissions the sinner. Says, I'm going to make you not a fisher of fish, but I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So in this moment, verse 11, Peter hears this call from the Holy One of God. He leaves everything and he follows. Because the holiness of the Lord is, is such that it takes sinners. And it gives them purpose and meaning and direction, a call. And this is good news for us today, isn't it? We think of Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's that's true of all of us. That, That should be in all of our autobiographies. That should be in all of our statements on our descriptions on Facebook and Twitter. We are one of those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we understand the sinfulness of our sin, we should, like Peter, be ones crying out, depart from me, Lord. It's right for him to depart from us, to abandon us in our sin, to to withdraw from us in in, in our rebellion. But it's the acknowledgement of our sinfulness that begins the goodness of the good news. Because though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God has loved us in this. He's demonstrated his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Holy One of God came into the world to recall us and to reclaim us. The only thing one needs to follow Jesus is to confess that they're sinners, to acknowledge what we all know about ourselves in dark and in quiet, when we're alone with our hearts, to acknowledge what God already knows about us and to follow this Holy One who's come to save us. Here's a holiness that exposes us to ourselves and drives us to confession. But number two, Jesus has a holiness that cleanses us before God. It's one thing to have our sins exposed. It's quite another to make us clean before God. I mean, what hope would there be if only our sin were brought to light and there were no way of dealing with it? So we need something or someone who cleanses us before God. Verse 12 tells us, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now that sentence should be eye-popping for two reasons. Number one, this man is full of leprosy. Leprosy is any number of skin diseases that in 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 the religion of Israel, in the worship of Israel, made you unclean before God. Uh, sort of lesions and boils and abrasions and the sin in, in the skin, for example, uh, excuse me, that, that while you have them, you can't worship with God. And and, and that's the the second thing that's surprising here. This man is in the city. According to the Old Testament, anyone who was a leper, who was discovered to have a leper's disease, he was to live alone outside the camp, outside the city. And so we're startled by this this man, covered in in swords, supposed to be outside the city, inside the city, where, where people are coming to Jesus. As I said, because of the leprosy, he was to be treated as unclean. And and this was in keeping with God's law. So again, if you keep your finger here in Luke 5, you can turn with me this time to Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus chapter 13, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible. (laughs) Chapter 13, big number. Look with me first at verses 1 to 3, a small number. This is what we find stated in God's law. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall examine the disease area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the disease area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. As we said, to be pronounced unclean would mean then to be unable to approach God or to be a part of God's people. Look down at verses 12 and 15. And if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, keep in mind Luke 5, this man is full of leprosy, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look, and if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. If it is all turned white, and he is clean. But when raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. And the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him unclean. Raw flesh is unclean, for it is a leprous disease. I think maybe this is what's going on with the man in Luke 5, when Luke tells us he's full of leprosy. He's covered from head to foot, and he's he's covered with raw flesh, open sores. Can you imagine the discomfort? Can you imagine the the pain? And look with me in verses 45 and 46 of Luke 13. It tells us how a leper was to act and to be treated. The leprous person who has a disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has a disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This is a terrible thing. To walk around persons who come in the sound of your voice, and to always have to cry, cry out about yourself, unclean, unclean, unclean. To have people, as it were, shun you and put you outside of society and to, to have, as it were, your ability to come to God and worship with God's people suspended. It's not only painful, it's isolating. There's a stigma, there's a, there's a heavy cloud that hangs over such a person. According to Leviticus chapter 14, before a leprous person could be brought back into the camp, two things were necessary. First, the priest had to examine him and to be sure the leprosy was over. Secondly, the man had to make an offering for his sin. And the blood of that offering would be sprinkled on the right earlobe, on the right thumb, and the right big toe. And when he had finished offering an atonement for his sin, then he would be gathered back into the the assembly of Israel. I love what my brother Lig Duncan points out here. Notice, the law and the priests could not make the man clean. The law and the priests could only determine if he had been cleansed. There was no remedy in the law to cure the leprosy. There was no remedy in the law or no remedy in the priest to restore this man and to return him by some act of the priest himself or by some act of the law. Atonement would be necessary. And so we go back to Luke chapter 5. Here comes this man full of leprosy to Jesus. Because he's a leper, no one can touch him. To touch him would be to become unclean yourself, to become like the leper yourself. And he comes to Jesus in verse 12 and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me It's not clear how he knew this about Jesus. Maybe he's just sick of being unclean. Maybe he's just sick of being sick. So he casts himself on God. He says, Lord, if you will. And he shows faith in Jesus' power when he says, you can make me clean. He recognizes in Jesus, the Holy One of God, that there is a power in this holiness that's greater than the power of the law or the Old Testament priests. And here's the wonder. Jesus does two things. Verse 13. First, he stretches out his hand and he touches the man. And you can imagine all the faithful Jewish persons standing around watching Jesus interact with this leper and seeing Jesus begin to stretch out his hand and, and inside they're crying, no, don't touch him. Don't touch him. You're going to be defiled. But the Holy One of God does this most human thing. This thing that so wonderfully affirms this man's humanity. He touches it. He ends his isolation. He ends his social stigma. And the verse goes on to say he did a second thing. He says, I will be clean. And he healed him. Here's a holiness that's not defiled by what it touches. Is a holiness so powerful, so pure, that it transformed the unclean into the clean by touch and by a word. Here's a question for us as Christians. Who do we think of as unclean? Who are the lepers of our society? It's an important question for us to ask ourselves because The church has a savior who cleanses the unclean. Yet the church has a history of rejecting the unclean. Get that in your head. Who's the the unclean, do you think? We can think back to the 80s when the AIDS epidemic was blowing up and getting national attention and honestly how the church fumbled like a red-skinned running back. So I want to make sure you're listening. <laughs> I, want sure, I want to make sure you're listening. We, we here to worship God. We're smashing idols. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but how the church, how the church fumbled and treated persons with AIDS as lepers. Persons today with same-sex desire how so many Christians and so many churches who treat them as unclean, unclean, unclean. Drug addicts, drug sellers, prostitutes, alcoholics, the homeless. We we, we watch Jesus here and we see we see holiness in a moving picture, and what we see here is a holiness that touches and transforms what it touches. It doesn't withdraw from the sinner. It doesn't run from the unclean. It comes close, and it changes what it comes close to, and it, it begs us as a church to consider, reconsider what we think of as unclean and how we engage with it. For I think it's the habit of some with a a well-intended desire for holiness to run from what's unclean, but we are supposed to run to it with the good news of Jesus Christ. See, We in Christ, filled with his spirit, can and should be around the unclean so we can tell them that there's a way to be made clean. And that way is calling on the name of the Lord the way this leper does upon him to make us clean. As a church family, I believe the Lord would, he wants us in our mission, in our neighborhood, to have a special concern and a special love for those that the rest of the world would discard and disregard as unclean. And that requires us to rethink some things, to, to rethink some stigmas and to rethink some, some attitudes. It requires us to rethink what it, makes a person clean or unclean. Jesus does that, for example, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, where he says there, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of his mouth. For out of the heart, it's out of the heart that cleanness and uncleanness come." which means it isn't a matter of sort of rubbing up against the wrong person and getting unclean or being in the wrong setting with someone and and getting unclean, uh, being around someone who doesn't share your values that makes you unclean. It's what's happening in our own hearts that make us unclean. But By the grace of God, we can go to those whose hearts issue forth sinful speech and sinful actions and recognize that we're just like them. Lepers we were too tell them about a one who touches the unclean and cleanses them so we want to be a church family again that avoids the holy huddle we're not we're not just gathering to be cute on sunday right we're not just gathering to, to sing a few songs on sunday we're not just sort of gathering to 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 pray to be plastic christians Oh, actually, we, we, are, we feel thrusted by the Lord into the world with this good news in full confidence that the Savior goes with us. He'll transform everyone he touches. That's our burden. That's our calling. We serve a Savior who cleanses the unclean. Notice the third thing, he has a holiness that, that legitimately forgives sins. That's what's at stake in verses 17 to 26. When we think of holiness, we, we rightly think of its incompatibility with sin. We're right to see that light and darkness don't mix. We, we see light and darkness not only don't mix, but we, we are right to think of that metaphor as the light chasing away the darkness, right? But sometimes we go a step further. And we begin to, thinking about that metaphor, begin to think that the light hates the darkness. But what if light does something else to darkness? What if holiness does something else to our sin? See the third scene there? It's one of my favorite events in the Bible. It begins at verse 17, some days after Jesus cleansed the leper. The Lord is now teaching the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or the scribes. He's, he's, he's with the holy men of Israel, and they've come from everywhere, even from Jerusalem, the, the, the religious capital of Israel, to hear Jesus speak. And, and Luke gives us this juicy little detail there in verse 17. He says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. There's an extraordinary power at work as Jesus teaches. We might call it a, an unction or anointing. But there's also an extraordinary faith about to be demonstrated. Look there in verses 18 and 19. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. And here the crowds again, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. I just love that scene. See, see, many of us might get upset when you get people come over to the house and they spill a little something on your carpet. You got your little holiday meal spread out and they'd have messed up your favorite tablecloth. Well, we have a baby if somebody starts taking the roof off and let let through the roof a hole big enough for a man laying on a bed. Stay farm ain't covering that. You know, we 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 kind of upset at that point, right? Can you imagine the owner of the house? What in the world? <laughs> they, they, they lower this man through the roof right at Jesus' feet. And the reason they have to do that is because sometimes the crowd with itching ears get in the way of the people with need who really want to be with Jesus. Amen. And Notice what Jesus says. Not only is there extraordinary faith being demonstrated, we know that in verse 20, because when he, Jesus, saw their faith, look at what he said. He said, Man, he said just like that too, man, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> and that's stunning. Jesus says nothing about the man's legs or paralysis. Did you notice that? He focused on the man's soul. He forgives the man's sins. Listen, you, you can be paralyzed and unable to get around with your friends and land on your bed in paralysis, be full of sin. See how Jesus thinks. Our main need is not physical healing. Our main need is spiritual forgiveness. So you remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 8. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off and throw it away. And he says this, it is better to enter life crippled, eternal life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. Better to limp into heaven than run into hell. Jesus understands that paralysis is nothing compared to punishment. So Jesus forgives the man's sin, but there's an objection. Notice in verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Two questions are rhetorical, right? They, they have this main point. Anybody but God who forgives sins is blaspheming. He's taking the place of God. He is therefore slandering God, which is what blasphemy means. They, they have a proper theology of forgiveness, that only God can ultimately forgive sins. That's, that's right as far as it goes. But they don't know God. They don't know that this is the day of their visitation. What they get wrong is not their assumption about God forgiving sins. What they get wrong is that their assumption that Jesus is not God. Pause for a moment. If you were Jesus, how would you answer their objection? How would you respond? Now, some few of us would call down thunder and lightning. (laughs) So glad we ain't Jesus. Most of us are probably already thinking about our arguments, the words we would use to prove that we're Jesus. It's not what Jesus does. He meets their objection with an object lesson, a parable in miracle. Notice the Lord's reply in verses 22 to 24. He responds to their objection. He says, first of all, he raises the stake in verse 23. He says, which is easier? Right? It's easy for people to walk around and say your sins are forgiven and you can't see sin and you can't see the reality of forgiveness. Anybody can get away with saying that, which is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to do something demonstrable in your sight, like say to this man, get up from your bed and walk to really heal him that way. Well, the answer to the question is obvious, isn't it? The harder thing At least in terms of us being able to see it happen and and verify something, is for a man to be healed who was brought here on a bed through the roof. Right? Notice what Jesus says. Verse 24. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, says that to the scribes and the Pharisees. Then notice he turns to the paralyzed man and says, I say to you, rise pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rises, picks up his bed, and goes. Now when Jesus says, I say to you, he's putting all this in his own authority. He's being emphatic about that. They've questioned as to whether or not he is God. He's responded by saying, let me show you I'm God. Let me show you that I can forgive sins. And let me show you that not by some clever theological argument. Let me show you that by a genuine miracle which testifies to the truth of my teaching. And so he looks at this man and he says, pick up your bed and walk. The man picks up his bed and walk. And the whole point was he was showing them that they might know for sure that he had authority to forgive sins. Verse 26 records their reaction. Look there. And amazement sees them all, and they glorify God, and were filled with all, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Do you know what I find extraordinary? The Lord Jesus says, I'm going to do this miracle to prove that I can forgive sins, and he had just forgiven a man's sins. Do you know what I find extraordinary? Nowhere in this text does anybody say, forgive my sins too. They're amazed at the work of God. They're in awe at this miracle that was just done. Here is a holiness in their presence that legitimately forgives sin, and nobody stopped to say, I'm a sinner, forgive me too. It's amazing. Having eyes they do not see. Having ears they do not hear. And how often when this good news goes out to sinners, it says there is a savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who died in your place, was crucified on the cross, was buried three days and raised from the grave. And his resurrection proves that God will forgive sinners and justify them if they repent of sin and believe in him. How often that message is going out and people have said we heard a good sermon today or people have said we heard a powerful word today, but nobody said forgive me my sins is a Savior, eager to forgive, has come to forgive, has come to cleanse the unclean, has come to gather people who know they're unclean, who know they're broken in sin, and will restore them. All the sinner needs to do is say, here I am, Lord. Save me, a sinner. Oh, beloved, I don't know how you came this morning what your state is with the Lord this morning. Whether you're a Christian and you have full assurance of your faith, and in that full assurance you you fight your sin and and you go to your sin, you go to Jesus Christ, your advocate with your sin, and and this is but another joyful reminder to you to keep fleeing to Christ, praise God. Well, if you've come this morning and you're not yet a Christian, and you've never heard this message before that Jesus saves the unclean and saves the sinner. Or you've heard it before and you've not yet responded. Oh, I plead with you this morning. I beg you this morning. Don't make the mistake of these people in verse 26. Who says, I had a good time at Potluck. I met some nice people. There's a new church in town and it's all all wonderful. But I didn't ask Jesus to forgive my sin. That, beloved, would be tragic. He has done everything for our salvation. He has lived a perfect life to supply our righteousness to God so that that we would be considered obedient and righteous before God. That's because of Jesus. And he has died a sinner's death to suffer our judgment from God on the cross. When he dies on the cross, he's not dying because of any sin that he did. He had none. He's dying for our sin to turn away the anger of God to make a way of escape from hell so that the unclean would be touched and redeemed. He did that for you, beloved. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart as Israel did in the wilderness. Confess your sin like Peter. Call upon him to cleanse you of your sin like the leper. Believe in him And be saved. We're going to be here for potluck. We're going to be here after the service. Uh, You have our emails and phone numbers on the back of the bulletin. Uh, We'd like nothing more than to help you understand this and to help you believe this. Let us know how we can serve you. But you don't need us. Go straight to Jesus. Confess to him. Repent. Turn of your sins with him. And believe in him. He will save you. He will keep you to himself. Jesus makes things clear. He doesn't multiply words. He doesn't give proofs, verbal proofs. He does the harder thing, the greater thing. He demonstrates that he is the God who forgives sins, even a holy God that forgives sins. Now, I think this is instructive to us as Christians on another level as well. Right now there's a controversy, some of you will know, brewing between a, a Christian college and one of its professors. Uh, the professor made some statements uh, that were meant to express solidarity with Muslim neighbors and friends who, you know it or not, are, are catching hard time uh, in the country right now. Is one of the worst things you could be in, in some people's eyes right now as a Muslim. So she intended very much to express some solidarity with them and some sympathy with them, which is appropriate for us as Christians to do. But she made the statement that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. As you might imagine, that created some furor, right? And people began to line up on their sides and to take their sides. And, and, and the university uh, asked her for some clarifying statement and probably in private conversation asked her to retract the statement, failing some clarification, and she kind of doubled down and uh, sort of stood her, stood her ground and so began this, this kind of uh, skirmish. I couldn't help but think that this passage where Jesus is proving that he is the Lord who forgives sins is instructive in a conflict like that, in a conflict where the question is, who is God and how do we worship him? We have to be clear in our own minds about how to answer that, crystally clear, because eternal life and salvation hang in the balance for people. There are at least three things that we can say based upon this text. Number one, vague notions of God and even being in awe of God. It's not the same thing as knowing God. It's not the same thing as knowing God. And we meet people all the time on the block that say things like, yeah, I believe in God. And and you start to scratch on that a little bit and and there's no there there. All right? It's just a vague notion of, of God. And these Jewish religious leaders have a good general theology, but they don't know Jesus. And this is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The second thing we could say, vague worship of God is not the same thing as worshiping God the way he wants to be worshipped. It is God who determines what is satisfactory worship. All the way back to the differing offerings of Cain and Abel, and in the detailed instruction of the law given to Israel, and in a conversation with a woman in John 4 where he says the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It is the Father who determines and regulates appropriate worship to him. In that sense, beloved, Christians, Muslims, and Jews do not worship the same God or do not even recognize the same being as God. This is critical. And here's the third thing we can say when people are confused about the true God and Jesus Christ, when gospel clarity is at stake, the proper response is a plain statement of the truth. The professor is not Jesus. So we we want to be gracious with our sister in the Lord. right? But we also need to recognize that her response is in no way as plain and demonstrative as our Lord's response here. If someone, especially our employer, is mistaken about our belief, then a, we want to very simply, and we can do it in one sentence, correct their error, refute the error, and b, plainly state the truth. Make it plain. Don't make it complex. Make it simple and clear, not convoluted. Is what our Lord does here. It's the apostolic example in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse two, where Paul says, basically, um, we commend ourselves to God and you by a plain statement of the truth. And we live in a society that's confused about everything. Everything. It's never been more important, beloved, that you and I be committed to the truth and committed to stating it plainly. That will feel like a knife in conversations, but it's the kind of knife that divides truth from error, righteousness from unrighteousness. It's the kind of knife that cuts away the brush to make the path to gospel salvation clear. That's willed that night. All that was free. Fourth point. Jesus cast the kind of holiness that calls sinners to repentance. That's what we see in verses 27 to 32. After this, verse 27 begins, after the holy men failed to ask for forgiveness, Jesus goes out and he sees a tax collector named Levi. Now, in Jesus' day, tax collectors weren't loved any more than the IRS is loved today. In fact, they were kind of vilified. They had a reputation for cheating people on their taxes. And oh, by the way, guess who they collected taxes for? Rome. Their oppressors, right? So they were generally despised. Jesus goes out. He sees Levi, the tax collector, and says to him, follow me. And Levi, like Peter, leaves the tax booth. And presumably the the money and the people in line to make transactions, he leaves his booth and everything and follows the Lord. It's what discipleship looks like. It's what turning repentance looks like. Notice what he does next. When a man finds acceptance with the Lord, he naturally wants to celebrate. He wants his friends to find in Jesus what he has found in Jesus. So in verse 29... Levi Levi throws a dinner party as Jesus there is the main guest, and he invites, notice there, a large company of tax collectors and others. So apparently, Levi is trying to to reach his friends, and and Jesus is willing to hang with him. But in verse 30, the Pharisees and scribes are still grumbling. Why do you eat with tax collectors? Now they're thinking two things at least when they say that. Number one, that this is unclean, right? It's the old idea of holiness separating itself from sinners. But they're thinking a second thing, more problematic. They're thinking they're not sinners. (laughs) They ought to take a place at the table. (laughs) But they're blind to their own condition before God. Religious people often struggle with how we're to engage sinners. So we ask questions like, is it okay to go out with them after work? Is it okay to have a, a drink with them at their home over dinner? Is it okay to go to their weddings? You know, what about the club? And those questions come from a good concern for holiness and for Christian witness. That's a godly concern. Here's what I want to press on. It's important to note how our Lord's activities challenge our notions of holiness. If we think holiness is only or primarily a matter of separation, we end up isolating ourselves from the very people we're called to reach, don't we? So we struggle with those questions. We find ourselves at odds with Jesus' example here. And we find ourselves attempting something that the Bible actually says is impossible. You remember, you can write this text down, I'll read it to you. You remember how the Bible addresses this question in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 13? The Apostle Paul writes there, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then he explains in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. What the Bible says is if you're going to separate yourself from sinners, where are you going to go? You got to start a colony on the moon of one because some other sinner's coming, right? (laughs) So you'd have to go out of the world. Then he goes on, verse 11. He says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. You see how the Bible says our instinct is upside down? The church has too often been afraid to engage the lost world outside and too often been complacent about the sin inside. The Bible says, have a concern about the one who calls himself a brother, who professes to be a Christian, but lives an unrepentant, outwardly immoral life. With that one, don't even eat. Put him out of your fellowship, Paul says early in 1 Corinthians 5. Practice church discipline. Those are the ones that you're to judge. But with the outsiders, go to them. Eat with them. Drink with them. That you might be able to reach them. You can't reach the people you have no contact with. And so Jesus in Luke chapter 5 gives us his, what, what he's up to in verses 31 to 32. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, those who are sick have the need of a physician. I have not called to call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You can't call people to repentance if you have never with them. You can't reach them with the gospel. If you never go to them. And they are not coming where we are. They find our parties boring. They, they find our fun boring. That's okay. We expect them to. They have taste for this world, we have taste for heaven. Those things are not easily joined together. And it puts on us a burden not to have them adjust to our taste, and certainly not for us to adopt their taste, but it does put for us a burden to cross a bridge, to make contact, to reach them. This is what Jesus is teaching by his example here. But we're not Jesus. We're getting to know Jesus, but we're not Jesus. So we need at least three qualifications on this, right? Number one, We need to know our limits and our temptations as we go into the world. If you're easily tempted with alcohol, you don't need to take a drink and go to the bar with your colleagues after work. You don't need to do that. You need to avoid that. You need to give no room for the devil, make no provision for the flesh. But that means being honest about your temptations and, and and the sins that so easily beset. Number two, we need to keep a redemptive purpose or goal in mind as we go into the world. We're not just going to the world to hang with the world. We're not just going to sort of, you know, I was at the party, I was at the club, and oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. I've seen Christians boasting at worldliness. Boasting as if some badge of honor that, that they drink this brand of whiskey or, or they go to this place and that place. And, and, and I'm thinking that's, that's immature. Surely you're causing people to stumble. Surely you're setting a bad example. We're not going to boast at how liberal we are with the world. We're going with a saving purpose in mind, to build relationships and to put their hands into the Lord's hands that he might touch them and cleanse them. And there's a third thing we need to keep in mind. We go this way, that Christ is our holiness. That's what 1 Corinthians 1.30 says. Colossians 2 tells us that multiplying rules is of no effect in subduing the flesh. Don't taste, don't touch, don't don't do this. Paul says that kind of asceticism, that kind of legalism, it it will not produce righteousness, produce more rules and more hypocrites, right? Well, well, how do we go then if we have a, a legitimate concern for holiness? We go remembering Christ is our holiness, Christ is our redemption. Christ is our sanctification. The Father has made Christ to be wisdom for us. So we go, to put it another way, trying to fully embody life in Christ. We we go into those places (laughs) declaring it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And we go into those places armed not with rules, but go in those places with our hearts stocked with God's word hoping to insert it where we can. Here's what we we see in these verses. The Lord has a preference among people. He does not prefer the righteous, those who think they are righteous in their own eyes. He prefers the sinner, those who are honest enough to admit that they have sinned before the Lord. And it's striking here because again, the world gets it Backwards, when we come to a, a, a sort of natural notion of holiness, we think the holy God, of the universe, hates the sinner and, and loves the righteous who please him. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel first comes as a word of condemnation and says to all of us that we are sinners, and God loved us while we were sinners. He exercises here a preference for the sinner, because it's the sinner who knows they need a doctor. The righteous aren't called to repentance. They don't think they're sick. And and you know who is self-righteous this way because when you talk to them and you offer them eternal life in Jesus Christ, they say, no, dog, I'm good. It's like, no, dog, you ain't. There's none good but one, Christ the Lord. As we close, consider what's laid out for us in this text. We get to know the holiness of Christ the Lord. It's a holiness that exposes our sin, and yet it's a holiness that cleanses us before God. It's a holiness that extends to us the the offer of forgiveness and calls even more strongly to those most aware of their sinful state to come to repentance and come to life. And as we get to know Jesus in this passage, we learn something about how to respond to him, don't we? We should, like Peter, confess our sin. We should, like the leper, call out, Lord, if you will, cleanse me. We should, unlike the crowds, knowing that Jesus forgives, seek that forgiveness. We should, like Levi, the tax collector, repent, leave all, and follow Christ. Notice something about the crowds in the text. Verse 1, the crowd presses in on Jesus so much so that he can't minister the way he wants to. A little bit later, the crowd presses in on him so much so that those who need to get to Jesus can't get to him. The crowds in Levi's house are amazed at the miracle, but later grumbling at Jesus. The crowds grumble about the Savior who's seeking to save sinners. Rarely do the crowds, beloved, know how to follow Jesus. Rarely do the crowds know the mind of the Lord. So never follow the crowd are following the crowd's sake. Instead, even if you have to do it alone, drop everything and follow the Lord yourself. If we would have eternal life in God's kingdom, we have to follow the one who knows the path to the kingdom. We have to forget the crowds and sing as we do sometimes at baptisms. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Again, beloved, today is the day of salvation. Today, the Lord calls sinners to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Forget about everybody else. Forget about other people in this room, even. Let us think of our own sins. Don't we need forgiveness? Don't we need to be cleansed? If that's so, it means we need to believe in Jesus and follow him as our Lord. And we need to do it right away. Follow Jesus. Don't turn back. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we declare those of us who know you that we know who you are. The Holy One of God. The Lord of all creation. And we declare that you are not what we expected. You are more than we expected. For we expected a holiness that would separate itself from sinners. We expected a holiness that would would crush sinners in anger and wrath. We expected a holiness that would leave us undone and unclean. But you have revealed to us that even in your perfect holiness, that in fact your holiness is more powerful than hell. That your holiness is more powerful than our sin. That your holiness would cleanse us rather than us pollute you. We give you praise for that. And we pray, O Lord, that today someone would enter into that holiness by faith in you. And we pray that those of us who have entered it would progress deeper into it by faith in you. Thank you, Lord, for being our holiness. In Jesus' name. Oh man.